0: Okay, salaam alaikum everyone. Bismillah, ar rahim. Welcome to a Tuesday session. I'm so so excited to welcome you to a Tuesday session again. It's been a while since we've been doing um, two a week. Um, you know, it's it, it was interesting because this was our routine all of last year, so we really fell into a really um, really good rhythm. It was pretty intense and um, now taking uh, some time away to do one session a week um, and coming you now back to two two a week is is a really interesting dynamic it's it's kind of like shifting gears again which is um great um and particularly apropos for today because today is june 21st is the first day of summer so it's kind of a good day to kick off um a new new thing um and i have a very special guest in my lap today interestingly this is henry as people might have known or remember henry is our mascot And um, it's good timing because I actually was gonna talk about dogs today, so I was really excited to walk in and be like, oh, Henry. So um, he just had to, of course, make a guest appearance. Um, But you know, spring, I mean, uh, summer is lovely. We've been doing a lot of gardening here. You know, like I love to reflect on how these Halakas kind of touch um, our lives in unexpected ways. And so it's very interesting because um, You know, Sharif has been really getting into gardening and um, reading up on plants and I was doing a a little bit of research on on the side myself and it's fascinating to discover that plants actually love classical music and they respond very well to classical music. Someone did actually a lot of research and they flourish when they listen to beautiful music Um, and then conversely when they listen to rock music they die. Um, and so they I mean they they, I guess bloom but then they eventually die and they're not happy about listening to rock music so it's so fascinating just the idea of of that you know the impact Um, and then the other thing that Shree found out that I thought was fascinating too is that plants actually are created in such a way that they they do better with human interaction so you know when humans get involved and you know um, tend to the plants and all that 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 actually is something better and so again just like pointing to just the beautiful um you know design um, alhamdulillah that you know god created creation to depend on one another and need one another to flourish which i think is just so beautiful um so i wanted to share just take a moment to um share with you guys something that sheikh and i Have been really obsessed with in these last couple of days I'm gonna just put Henry down for a little bit sorry Henry oh and Henry needs special prayers he's having a little bit of eye issue so if everyone could please make some duat, um, he just yeah he needs a little extra help I'm gonna let him go (laughs) so um, this is what I wanted to share I'm gonna do a little bit of a screen share here And I discovered, I should say, a friend of mine on Facebook sent me these incredible videos of um, a dog that she was learning to communicate with the dog through buttons. I don't know if anyone has actually seen this, but it's um, really, really fascinating. And Sheikh and I have been, like, watching these videos and just with our jaw, like, dropped because it's like someone has spent so much time working with their dog, someone who's very fascinated with the idea of how we communicate with other with animals and in this case her dogs and how she taught her dog from the time that um the the dog was a puppy um like how to communicate like what what she likes um you know whether it's like go outside or whatever so i wanted to show you some of these videos because they're incredible um if you want to follow it's on instagram and it's called um it is called what about bunny hold on oops i didn't share i'm gonna share here okay Hang on one second. Okay. Can you guys see this? Okay. What about bunny? So I just want to share with you a few of these incredible videos. <laughs> park, tomorrow morning, okay? park outside. Tomorrow oh, morning, baby. Park and... Beach. That's what the, when sh, when the dog presses okay, on the Andy? button, that's what it's saying. Okay. Can go beach this is dad, love you, dad. And there's his dad. <laughs> he goes over there and kisses him. Gets a little bit more sophisticated too. Okay. It says, I coined this phrase last summer. Outside, couch, beach. Small morning couch, outside. There he is on the outside, small morning couch. belly <laughs> Okay. This one's very interesting. So her husband is just leaving the apartment to go get food. It says, Johnny left to pick up takeout for dinner. So this just goes on. She's got so many videos, but it's incredible. Oh, he, there's one more. This is really cute. So he just took a bath. And he's mad. I know. I'm so happy. Now you what? <laughs> I <know>. He's mad. <laughs> mad that he had to take a bath. Anyway, there's so many of these videos, it's so incredible, and it just like underscores how amazing creation is, and especially dogs. Um, So, sorry to turn this dark, but today, June 21st, is also the first day of the Yulin Dog Festival in China, which is where they kill dogs and they eat them. And so this is something that um, I wanted to bring to people's attention because, I mean, I think maybe people have heard about this. It's honestly, when I was looking at this, it just, I could not stop crying. Um, And this comes up on my feed around this time, like on social media feeds around this time every year. And it's been always really difficult for me to look at the pictures because you see dogs that are in cages getting ready to be transported, to be killed and eaten, and they're treated incredibly cruelly. Um, and so you find that there are groups like the Humane Society um, uh, International that are now raising funds. So I just want to encourage people to please Donate this is something that has been going on for a long time. Um, it's actually now in, in China. Apparently um, It was fu- it was really the, this, they call it the the Yulin dog festival. There's nothing really festival about it um, the dogs are um, grabbed from people's homes. They're grabbed from the streets. They're just basically you know, um, used by the dog meat industry to fuel you know, their profits. Um, they, they grab these dogs. They throw them um, in these trucks. They're horrifically, they're, they're dehydrated. They're, they're you know, beaten by sticks. They're just jammed in these really small spaces and transported sometimes thousands of miles away to arrive at this place once a year where then the dog meat is consumed and they're terrified. They see, the dogs themselves see what, like other dogs in front of them get beaten to death and so they know what's coming for them. Um, it's a it's a horrific practice and it's actually um, not anything I think tied culturally necessarily to like China's culture but it's really just a profit making industry. Um, and even I think if you look at the um, legislation, dogs and cats are not, listed as livestock that can be eaten, but it doesn't matter because the traders do it anyway and nothing is enforced. Um, But so there are people that are fighting this really evil, evil practice. Um, And, you know, I've even heard that people, you know, purposely torture the animals so that when they're, they're afraid that apparently they think the meat tastes better. It's so barbaric and obscene. There are just no words for it. Um, And so I also wanted to take this opportunity then to highlight, um, you know, Sheikh has talked a lot um, about dogs, you know, in favor of dogs and especially this is one of the few Muslim channels that actually, you know, supports and advocates, you know, loving dogs and treating them as the beautiful creatures that they are. But um, I wanted to highlight a video that the Sheikh did um, back in uh, September of 2018. It's called Khalid double on dogs in the Islamic tradition and the dog meat trade because actually there was a group of documentary filmmakers that came um, to us back then. They were doing a documentary about the dog meat trade in Indonesia, not in China, because you know obviously this is a Muslim country, and that they felt probably there was more traction to go back to the tradition and say, well, what does the Islamic tradition actually have to say about dogs? You know, um, and so. This is a really important video to share with um, you know people who you know who have a question about where do dogs stand within the Islamic tradition. But he addresses um, you know w- the ownership of dogs, the treatment of dogs, kindness to dogs, and obviously this was all in in the context of arguing against the dog meat trade. So just to say you know when you see like these sorts of horrible pictures and you feel like you just want to scream and cry and you know and um, go crazy um you know it's what one thing i guess we really can do from afar is at least donate and support those who are actively fighting the cause on the front lines and then also educate ourselves i feel really proud when i can say you know i want to point to this video and say you know we actually have something really important to contribute to the education about dogs in our our Islamic tradition. You know, we as Muslims should not be the ones that are the most scared of dogs or the most fearful or, or, you know, disgusted with dogs. Dogs are the most beautiful creation. And examples to humanity for how we can actually be better human beings. So you know, when you compare and contrast these two examples of like someone who loves and you know wants to communicate with this beautiful creature, and then you see on the other end of humanity what is happening with people trying to eat and torture dogs. um, You know, this is an important part of our world, and it's something that we can make a difference with. If you have money to to donate, or you know, you can write or anything. Um, this is part of our, our education and part of our duty to testify and speak out. So I'm sorry to end on a dark note, but you know especially when we're talking about Surah Noor and light and how we bring light into this very dark world, um, I, I think it was um, just you know interesting um, you know co- confluence of things that um, inspired me to share this. So I'm so looking forward to day three of Surah Noor. Um, day one and two were absolutely stunning. We like after the fact, Continue to think and see and apply just the lessons that we've learned so far, and we have not even finished. So I'm I'm so excited to to see what more um, there is to uncover. Thank you so much, and thank you for being with us.
1: In the name of Allah, the Most Gracious, the Most Merciful. Subhanallah alaihi ala azim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbi alamin. Allahumma asalli wa aslamu wa barak Allahu Muhammad, Nabi al-Amin al-Musarrahmat alalamin. على آله الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين لما شخ لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلو العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين Um we stopped at twenty seven um, and we inshallah will proceed from there. Um I'm not going to 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 say in 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 much of summation in terms of summing what we've already done um because last halakha i think i've do, I've done quite a bit of that um, there's one minor point that i um, overlooked a lot of Muslims in the Sunni world especially. Uh, are familiar with the tradition which uh, I have strong reasons to to um, be very skeptical uh, of its authenticity uh, that Ali an um, recommended or told something to the effect to the prophet Ali uh, we uh, on the occasion of Hadith al-Ifq um, that recommended that the that the Prophet divorce uh, Aisha. And in the Sunni tradition, you find you know a, a lot of people that then speculate that this created a resentment that played a role in the eventual Events that culminate in the Battle of the Camel, etc., uh, etc. Et but um, it's probably useful for Sunnis to know that at the same time that you have this tradition, which I believe was politically motivated, meaning that it's one of the ahadith, the genre of ahadith that. Uh, were generated around or that have direct bearings on the fitna, uh, the, the, the civil war that took place. And these Ahadiths always have, are suspect because they, they have political motivations behind them. But it would probably be useful to know that there is, at the same time, a a tradition related in a a number of versions uh, that is less popular among contemporary Sunni Muslims, in which um, it's, uh, Ali radiallahu anhu says something to the effect when when ali hears the the about hadith al-ifq um, his reaction is to say well speaking to the prophet allah defended you or allah defends you against all wrongdoing uh And I think, let's see if I can find some version of it. Yeah, so um Jibril Achmaraka anna ala na Alika Kodara uhmaraka bi Iqraj an-na'l An rijlik um if a Kaifalaya murok bi Iqraj ha well he's saying is that this that even if there even if your shoes were, were dirty the, you are you are in Allah's care to the extent that Jibril would come and tell you, your shoes are dirty, uh, take them off. Uh, so, how could there be a question about Aisha? Because if in fact she was guilty, Allah would have come and uh, come in and told you. Very similar versions to this tradition are attributed to either Omar, Uthman, and Ali, where they all say more or less so. For instance, in the version that's attributed to Osman, uh, Osman is reportedly says, uh, Allah doesn't allow for your shadow, for, for there to be a shadow that people would step on. So that he's saying that when it comes to the Prophet, that you will not find a shadow to the Prophet that people would even step on. So if Allah protects you from even the indignity of people stepping on your shadow, so how could it be that Allah wouldn't protect you from the indignity of uh, betrayal by your wife? So this genre of tradition, which I'm not saying that's authentic, I mean, I'm just saying that it's a genre of counter-traditions that in which the companions testify immediately upon hearing hadith al ifk that it cannot be so. There is no question that of Aisha's guilt. And um, for, although, you know, the, the, the Ali tradition, for instance, um, it's in Tafsir ibn Ajiba, among others, but um, for uh, the way people retell a tradition in, in every historical period has its own um, uh, has its own contingency. It has its own factors. I mean, so in, history is constantly being retold and reinvented. Uh, And it takes a great deal of effort to go beyond what has become popularized narratives within a particular historical moment uh, to sort of get at the root of things. So, I mean, I don't put... My my reading of the situation is that um, none of... Especially people who were very close to the Prophet, uh, the Ali al Bayt, none of them were implicated in Hadith al Ifq in any serious way. I mean, and and none of them um, even indirectly supported this type of nonsense. It just the the historical evidence that that any of the 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 um, the close companions would have been involved in this is is just not there. Um, okay, so before we just proceed on with Ayah twenty seven, remember that we, as I said before, it's like a pyramid, and at the center of this pyramid is the parable of the light and as we will see the place of that parable in the center of Surah Al-Nur is critical I mean I've sort of some of that has already been stated in the notion of refracting light and spreading light but we will get to an even more specific um, detail. So after, as we've talked uh, last halakha, after Allah anchors the principle that words matter and reputations matter and the way that you deal with each other's in, in in if in uh, if you're looking for a modern terminology the way that you deal with each other's karama it was each other's dignity and the way that you deal with each other's privacy is very important and then we as we saw in 26 that Allah underscores this by al khabithatu khabithin well, Khabithuna Lil Khabithat, what you about, or Tayebin, what Tayebuna Litaybat, and so on, that you are what you say, you are what you do, and if you engage in immoral conduct. Don't pretend that you are defenders of fadila. Don't pretend that you are combating fahisha. Fadila means honor and and goodness. And fahisha is, as we've said uh, before, um, is exactly the opposite. Good means lead to good ends. And good ends require good means. This is this is very critical. Good ends requires good means. As we will see, this is core to Surah Al-Nur. Don't think that the idea the very tempting idea that well you know since my motives are good my behavior can um, be excusable it doesn't work that way this is the nature of morality and to the extent when allah comes and comes and says al khabithatu khabithin وَالْخَبِثُونَ لِلْخَبِثَاتِ Al-Khabith is not just, it, Allah doesn't say al-fasikuna, al-fasikin, you know, the, the, those who are uh, sinners, for instance, but al-Khabith, Khabith is, um, how does uh, Muhammad Asa translate that word? No, he just tra- translates it as corrupt women for corrupt men. Habith is, I mean, you could say, a, 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 you can translate fisk as corruption or al-fasikun as the corrupt. But Habith is a corruption that with an element of treachery Fraud and dissimulation. So, if someone is a habith it is someone who is not just corrupt but also not straightforward. So, it's someone who pretends to be something, for instance. So, the the relationship be- between khubs and nifaq is very intimate. Because Khabis is someone who puts on airs. uh, And while they might pretend to be moral, in in fact, they are immoral. And even worse, while they might think that they are moral, indeed, in God's eyes, they are immoral. And when Allah comes and says, and it's a very... it's If you were involved in hadith al-ifq, if you were among those who engaged in this talk, and Allah comes and describes you as khabith, this is very devastating. Because Allah is saying, you are, khabith is the lowest of the low. It is from even from the time that the Qur'an is revealed, in, even till our very day, day and age, it's not. It's a, if you call someone a khabith, it's not a nice, um, say the least. Uh, it's not nice. Um, so the fact that Allah comes and says, "Listen, you know, you, you act like a khabis, you are a khabis, and don't pretend that just because." you go around saying, I am with the Prophet, والسلام, or that I am, for instance, related to Abu Bakr, as we saw with or that I hang around the right types of people, it's not going to get you off the hook. Regardless of how Allah knows the truth, and regardless of how you attempt to socially negotiate your status, if Allah knows what is in your heart and Allah knows what you utter, and if what is in your heart and what you utter is hopes, so for instance, people who are, are motivated by jealousy, we would describe as a khabith people who try to pretend like they're your friends. But in fact, they're very jealous of you and they try to hurt you behind your back. That's a khabith. And it's like Allah saying, "Well, I know who you are. And so, if you want to be a Tayyib and belong in that category, you better cleanse your heart. Because... If I know what is in your heart, then your place will be among the khubatha, which is a horrible status to be in. And note, this is underscored with mimma that when, it, when and unless you say, well, you know, really, it, it, no, Allah's not saying I am a khabis because Allah's not necessarily talking about hadith al ifq here. Allah underscores. No, indeed, I am talking about those who got implicated, those who were guilty by being implicated in this. Shameful episode and those who did not. now and remember all of this was prefaced with it shaitan following in the footsteps of shaitan. so you, you, you're, you get the point Allah saying. I take what is in your hearts very seriously, and I take what you say very seriously, and I, you're not, you can't fool me about, you know, all the, the the social posturing that people do, and the positioning, and the excuses, and the egoism, and all of that. Clean ends, clean means, they go together. Now. With that, then, Surah Al-Nur takes us to another element in dignity and privacy. By coming in and saying, (laughs) Ya ayyuhal amanu, la tadhulu biyutan ghayra biyutikum hatta tasta'nisu, watusallimu ala ahlika." ذلكم خير لكم لعلكم تذكرون 28 فإن لم تجدوا فيها أحدا فلا تدخلوها حتى يؤذن لكم إن قيل لكم رجعوا فارجعوا هو أذكى لكم والله بما تعملون عليم ليس عليكم جناح أن تدخلوا بيوتا غير مسكونة فيها متاع لكم والله يعلم ما تبدون وما تكتمون Okay, so this is now from 27 to 29. And here, you pause and reflect about what is the moral principle that is being underlined here. The sanctity of space. So Allah emphasized the sanctity of honor, the sanctity of the word. Now, and and in this dynamic of means and ends, if I am elevating a, a society that learns to respect one another's dignity, and one another's honor, well, you are not going to get there. You are not going to get to that nur unless you understand the sanctity of space itself. Now, there are a lot of hadith, again, that, you know, uh, some claimed were occasions for revelations. Others said no; they were not occasions of revelations, but they're sort of relevant to the revelation. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for instance, there's a hadith um, that the that the Prophet had a servant girl called uh, Rauda, and that there. A man stormed into the home of the prophet he wanted to talk to the prophet and he just came in and um without you know without saying seeking permission just just walked in and that the prophet والسلام, tells Ra um go ali mihil then was salam, that he tells uh, Rado, uh, go talk to this man and 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 tell him to have manners. To, to tell him to say, you know, to, to ask permission before just barging in and to say salam. Um, uh, there are other traditions that sort of interesting um th- this one um about ibn abbas that ibn abbas was so um shy and and so modest that when he would want to ask something of a uh, um Well, it doesn't tell us other than a niyati sahaba, that he would go to one of the the sahaba and would have a a question. He would go to the home and he wouldn't knock. He wouldn't, or say, or seek permission to, to enter. He would just sit at the front door and wait. And that then it's reported different some uh, there's versions that say abu bakr others that say omar others that say ali anyway that but whatever the version is that the sahabi would would eventually come out the the house and say how long have you been waiting there and he says you know whatever a long time and he'd say if you would have just told me you're here instead of just waiting and so, you know, you have other versions that either address those who barge in or address those who are extremely shy and won't even ask for permission. You know, probably these reports express some historical reality, some some. You know, it, historical truth about the social dynamics, but they in no way limit the meaning of these ayat, because the ummumin lost the 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 clear statements of this, of this revelation is that don't enter a home without giving appropriate notice. And then Allah doesn't stop there, but emphasizes that if there is no one there, don't go in. So, if, and if, in fact, you are told, I can't, I, you are not given permission to enter, that if you, if you are basically turned away, you don't have permission to go in. Now, just 27 and 28. What is being articulated here? It's a right to privacy. I mean, it is... It, the issue is not a technicality. This is this is a, a, a principle that the sanctity of the home and elsewhere where Allah repeatedly tells us us successful, you cannot spy. The, the, and as we will see Homes, back then, didn't necessarily have doors. It later on, and and we'll talk about this more specifically, um, or it would have just one door at the front, but the rooms wouldn't have doors, but would have some type of partition, some type of curtain. Um, This is due to uh, poverty, I mean, and even if you go to rural areas and um, in a lot of um, countries where, you know, you still find that reality that homes could be built where a, a room doesn't necessarily have a door but has some type of partition, even till today. Um, but nevertheless, coming to this society which I mean, you could think to yourself, of all the things that this society is has to deal with, is it really core that you teach society the right to privacy? And clearly the answer from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is yes. And reflect upon that, because... We find, especially, there, there is a, there's often people who think that they can build civilizations or they can build a nation or they can build a, without a foundation of rights. Rights are core to justice. Without rights, you have no justice. Justice is a balance between duties and rights. So when you think you can build a society, a nation, upon strength of armies or the brilliance of a charismatic ruler, or if you understand the Qur'an, even with the prophet there, it doesn't... Allah comes and says, no, learn to respect each other. Learn to honor one another. Because if you don't know how to honor one another, you will not emanate light. It is, unfortunately, this had not been Proper or adequately developed in um, Islamic norms. I mean, it's quite unfortunate that although the Quran clearly comes in and has the, a hard and fast rule that the presumption in favor of the right to privacy and the sanctity of the home. Now, 29, um, which, um, well, anyway. So, 29 refers to common public areas so let's see the translation on the other hand you will incur no sin if you freely enter houses not intended for living so yeah that's why Muhammad Asa translates it as houses not intended for living in but serving a purpose useful but always remember that God knows all that you do openly and all that you would conceal so what it says غير فيها متاع These are common areas where people, for instance, stored merchandise um, or areas for common usage. So the Quran, in a word, differentiated between. Private spaces and public spaces, just in these ayat. And again, what amazes me as a legal historian and a comparative law scholar that this distinction between a private space and a public space, and the 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 rights that attach to private spaces, and the idea of common usage um, is just way ahead of its time. I mean, eventually, these concepts develop in the common law and develop in the civil law systems, but the, it takes a very... Complicated history for even the distinction between a public and private space to develop in both of these legal systems, and the Quran just so seamlessly just states it out and just puts it out there. Okay. Then, core to this idea of privacy and dignity is Ghad al Basar. This is 30. Kul al Mu'minin, Yagudu min Absarihim, Wahfazu Furujahum, Zalika Azka Lahum, in Allah law Kabirun Bima Yasnaun. So Tell the believing men to lower their gaze and to be mindful of their chastity. This will be most conducive to their purity. And verily God is aware of all that they do. Um, here, I think, uh, Muhammad Azad it translates it, believing men, I think it covers both men and women. In um, and there is a hadith the the, the Prophet ﷺ is asked about 30 and there is a hadith that I think nicely puts this in, in proper position where the Prophet ﷺ says <laughs> So any public space, in the same way that private spaces have their right, and private spaces, the right of private spaces is privacy, that this is the space of the person who's there and no one has a right to intrude upon the space. but. When it comes to common spaces, or public spaces, public spaces have their dues as well. And the dues of public spaces, as this hadith uh, uh, um, explains, that you lower your gaze, meaning just because people are in public spaces they are not free game or they are don't that does not give anyone the right for people in public spaces to become targets of undue attention This is not just although we in modern Islam that, that's a tendency, is to, to always take Ghad al Basr as simply relates to lowering your gaze sexually. But it, it is not just that. It is that you don't you instead of you be, be mindful not to exploit the vulnerabilities of people in public spaces so as to turn them into spectacles. So Ghad basar is not just that you don't, you know, uh, st- um, it's not just staring at someone sexually but it, so for instance, if someone is uh, uh in is in the street and even uh, uh, and this is um, and they they husband and wife, and let's say they're in, in the public road and they start arguing and they're losing their temper the moral thing to do is to actually not exploit the situation to to turn it into a spectacle and to watch and listen, but to, in fact, ha- have empathy by, you know that they're going to be later on embarrassed about this, and to help them not be embarrassed by moving along. That, you you treat public spaces in such a way that you preserve the dignity of human beings regardless of the circumstance. So I... um, Many years ago, I was somewhere, um, and unfortunately, I saw uh someone got someone was it was a got hit she, this was a schoolgirl and she was crossing the road and she got hit with a car and islamically you and she she was dead on the spot islamically you you rush and you cover because she got very exposed her clothes you 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 rush and you cover this person to cover her aura even as a corpse this is something that we were taught from and i noticed some guy um who went up to the body and her, her most of her clothes just like flew up and he lifted the what we had put to cover her the body the ambulance was had not arrived the police had not arrived and he took out his phone and it was clear he wanted to film um the her nakedness the uh, the corpse and this relates to the rest of the hadith kaf al aza wal-amr bil 'anil-munkar to, to not harm people in public spaces and to in fact enforce what is good and to act to prohibit what's evil so when you know when i saw this i grabbed the phone from his hand and and frankly i mean i i grabbed it and i threw it on the ground stepped on it, um, it yes you could say it's not you know you could turn away and make a, and I knew what he was doing. He was, he wanted to film it so he can post it because it's, you know, this is um, what people do these days. But I felt justified in, I mean, I felt justified in grabbing the phone and, and no, I wasn't gonna allow him to keep an image of, you know, this poor girl, schoolgirl, has a family, has an honor, has a dignity, and um anyway, you, you you get what I'm saying. So al Basar, Warad that you lower your gaze, you don't harm other people. You are mindful to use this public space, this shared space Without harm to other people, radhi salam, and that you return properly, return greetings, that you spread salam. And al-amr bil-ma'ruf an-nahy 'anil-munkar. I mean, a remarkable set of moral precepts about public spaces from the Prophet all in response, الْمُؤْمِنِينَ مِنْ أَبْصَارِهِمْ This is 30, right? فُرُوجَهُمْ Tell believers that part of the noor in society, part of what society needs is that you treat each other with the type of empathy and humility and modesty if you treat each other's, and, and here, take things to their, their natural, uh, natural conclusions. If you treat each other in public spaces as commodities, w- when, we, when we look at another as a, as a sexual target, for instance, we are commodifying and objectifying the other. By commodifying and objectifying, you are forgetting the humanity that is in the other. And the humanity that is in the other is the source of the right to privacy and dignity. So this is... How do I just... This is a whole moral attitude towards public spaces. I am dealing with fellow human beings who have as much of a right to be in this public space as I do. And in order to deal with fellow human beings in an Islamic way, I have to honor their humanity. I cannot look at them as... Simple numbers, or simple commodities, or objectify them in some fashion. I must fully acknowledge. So that is why it is extremely un-Islamic to be opportunistic. So you know, it, it is if you are, um, let's say, in in a space and the wind blows and someone's clothes becomes uh, you know are are lifted you you turn away because if you don't honor the public space the infraction is upon the dignity and the right of privacy of a human being um it's like the the example of this poor girl that got killed, you know, was killed, and her body exposed in, in the street. Um, I remember during the events of the Egyptian Revolution, soldiers attacked a woman and her... Uh, I don't know if they did it intentionally or, or not, but sh- it became a very famous picture with this woman being dragged on the on the streets with uh, her brassiere showing her, her shirt or whatever she was wearing was ripped off, and you could just you see her brazier and so on that's exactly the type of un islamic behavior even looking at a picture like that, leave alone taking that picture um, you know I remember people saying things like commenting about the fact that she was wearing colored a colored brazier and saying you know she must be uh, of loose morals because she was wearing a blue b- brassiere. I mean, how more un-Islamic can you get? It's, I mean, if you want a, a, a barometer of how far away people have deviated from the Qur'an, these are, these are uh, symptoms of deviation. Of how far people have deviated from the Quran. Okay, and obviously so this is old in Ghad al-Basra, and we can, you know, Ghad al-Basr is if it's not just lore, it's not just sexual enticement. Ghad al-Basr is an entire philosophy of life. Remember when I told you the hadith that two-thirds of a of a Muslim is tajahun, is to avert. It's avert everything. Two-thirds of the morality of a Muslim is to mind your business. That's part of the the philosophy of Ghad al-Basr, to mind your business, to not be eager to talk about the affairs of people, to respect people's privacy, to not be eager to violate people's privacy, to internalize modesty and humility it is not it is not an it is not a a an admirable quality that you are um jerry um uh, what is how do we translate jerry um bold or bold brash brash, brash. um you know that you can Talk about the, the quality of modesty and humility, and you internalize it out of respect for others. So it it is not modesty and humility if you don't talk about other people, but you have disdain for other people. If you basically think all oh, other people are not worth your time, that that's not what, that's not the. The, the philosophy of Ghad al-Basar. Ghad al-Basar is because you truly understand the rights of other people, the, the right to privacy, the right to be, in, if, if they experience moments of vulnerabilities, that, the, that, that does not entitle you then to exploit these vulnerabilities so among you know the um i mean these are from old days right uh what we were taught is you know when the 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 school kids and the you know secular schools they would say when a a woman would be uh, going around in the in the streets of Cairo, dressed prov- provocatively. Well, you know she she's uh, she's displaying herself. So, but the what we were taught is that also whatever whatever she's experienced that has allowed her to think that this is doesn't. Cheapen her. It is our obligation to preserve her honor, to respect her dignity by not looking at her, even when she puts herself on display. So, and of course, I, I mean, I remember, um, of course, in Egypt, like the the you know you hear things like Salafi, because mostly I mean, most of us would walk around in jalabiyas and you know we had like these uh, you know uh, the, the facial hair that would pass for a beard uh when you're very young um and if you happen to live in um in a, one of our yuh um Lived in, um, forgot the name of the street. Um, anyway, it's it's a street that just full or uh, has, has has is frequented by Arab tourists. Um, yeah, fill in the blanks, and you know, if, if, if there was an image that all oh, these these. Um, these Taliban, the, the, the Islamic uh, students, um, people would laugh at the modesty and the, the humility and the fact that you're, you're, you, know, you avoid looking at things. It, it is not out of weakness. You don't do it out of weakness. You do it out of respect to the dignity, even when people compromise their dignity. Your attitude is, I am not going to play a part in that because I know what, what values should be in a public space. Okay. Then, let me see, make sure I do it. Okay, so then we come to uh, 30. So Muhammad's Asad's translation. Well, this is 30, one. Okay, this is Muhammad's Asad's translation. Tell believing men to Lord no, we read this. Okay, thirty one and tell the believing women to lower their gaze and to be mindful of their chastity and not display their charms in public beyond what may decently be apparent thereof and hence let them draw their head coverings over their bosoms and let them not display more of their charms to any but their husbands or their fathers or their husbands fathers or their sons or their husbands sons or their brothers or their brothers sons or their sisters sisters, sons, or their women folk, or those whom they rightfully possess, or such male attendants are that as are beyond all sexual desire. We'll talk about that. al Irba, Mina al-Rijal. or children that are yet unaware of women's nakedness, and let them not swing their legs in walking so as to draw attention to their hidden charms and always o oh, you believers uh, all of you turn unto god in repentance so that you may attain attain a happy state so that's muhammad's assets translation and, and so on انتل ويجت ام تو اوما ملكت ايمانهم او التابعين غير اول الاربه من الرجال او الطفل الذي لم يظهر على عورات النساء ولا يضربن بارجلهن ليعلم ما يخفين من, زينت, من زينتهن وتوبوا الى الله جميعا ايها المؤمنون لعلكم تفلحون ام um, So it is widely reported that the Arabic um goes something like something like this, or I'm paraphrasing. Can it insa ala ada tijahliya yasdinna humurahun min khalfihin, fatabdun hurahun Wakala Iduhun Minjiubihin Wakanet Wa say yabdu minha So what this is saying is that the practice in Arabia um, and it's whether it was it seems like it was both in both in Mecca and Medina, is that we know that men were turbaned and women would wear a scarf or a head covering called the khimar. But the practice in pre-Islamic Arabia was that they would put the khimar, instead of the khimar coming down, they would put it to the back. al-khimar min khalfihin. So it would be tied to the back, leaving the chest area exposed. And that the jewb which is the opening in the chest area was in the practice of pre-islamic arabia uh probably both in mecca and medina was that it would be wide open so because of the wide opening what the cleavage would clearly show um and then they would a lot of times wear qalaid. um um uh, necklaces not not the the modern thin you know uh decorative necklaces but uh, the if you've ever seen traditional or traditional necklaces um they they could be you know quite thick uh they're, they're quite decorative and they would come now but still the chest area would be quite exposed um it is and this revelation which comes it says that covers this trust area instead of the khimar being tied to the back the khimar then is tied to the front to cover the chest area. Um, there is quite a bit of traditions that revolve around this revelation. So there is a hadith um, asma' bin Zaid uh, that. Women come to visit her. That women, they, they come. Um, let me see if I can actually give you the entire. Let's see if I, if I can't find it quickly. I'm not going to worry about it. It's not, I can't find it. Um, I, think I, I think I found it. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, is this the, the one that says that the woman would enter upon her Gayram Tazirat? يا يا أسماء بتوش كانت في محل في بني حارثة فجعل النساء يدخلن عليها غير متأذرات والمتذرات بوس فيبدو ما في أرجلهن من الخلاخ من الخلاخ وتبدو صدورهن وذ فقالت أسماء ما أقبح هذا فانض فانزل الله كل المؤمنات من أبصارهن واحفظن في الجن so this is uh, Again, re- said as an occasion for revelation, that she was Asma bint Murshida, or this is of course the same as Asma bint Zayd. Um, Murshida is uh, her mother. Anyway, that she was in, in Bani Haritha among the tribe of Bani Haritha, and women were coming in, and the way they were dressed, their legs showed and their chest showed as well. Um, so she said, ma'akbah this, ha'haza. This, this, this is just, like she was repulsed by it. She thought they were um, too, re- they revealed too much. And that was, a, that was the occasion for the revelation of uh this area. Um you get of course many other reports um among them that this area was uh revealed because of Asma bint Abu Bakr. This is the famous tradition where um the the Prophet والسلام, sees Asma and she is wearing something that is revealing, and he tells her, uh, when a woman reaches um, uh, age, becomes of age, uh, nothing should show of her except her hands and her face. The this tradition, however, most scholars, um, Question: Its authentic, authenticity because it was reported by Khalid bin Darik, and Khalid bin Darik never met Aisha, so there is a missing link. The Khalid bin Darik could not have heard it from Aisha because they've never crossed paths. Um, anyway, but the crux of the matter and to get to the heart of it is most classical sources understood this to require both a khumar, a head cover, and a head cover that, at least in, in Surat al-Nur, that covers the chest area, so that the chimar, instead of being tied in the back, it would come to the front and be tied in the front. And that the, also, as we will see, it says something about covering the legs. Well, let's get to it. So, and furthermore, that that the practice, pre-Islamic practice of women wearing necklaces that they, they, they were like jangles. They would make noises as women walks So y- they would bring attention. And it wasn't high-class women that would wear that. It was women that w- would, as reports say, that the women who, uh, who wear ankles that sort of jingled and make distinct noise, um, were women in prostitution uh, because they would bring attention to their legs and they would wear things that have a slit so that you can see the leg and this was a way of advertising um, her availability. And that is, is a prohibition of that. And say, don't bring attention to your legs. At the same time, the crux of the matter here is that it says, that they would cover their zina. What is zina? What is the zina of a woman that she should cover except for the categories that in this ayah are set out? Al-bu'ula, al-aba, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, you have, for instance, a report from Ibn Abbas Waqtada, Qutada wa Ibn Makhrama that say... Well, uh, Zina does not include that half of the arm. It does not include that half the leg. That, that's not included in Zina. You have, of course, many other reports that says Zina includes everything except the face and hands. But at the same time, this coexists with in numerous early authorities that say that zina is majarat al-ada wa jibilla ala What this means is whatever custom, wa jibilla is nature, the nature of things, uh, says is part of zina. So, let me read to you Muhammad Asad's footnote, because I think it will help us save time. Yeah. So, he says... My interpolation, this is footnote 37. My interpolation of the word decently reflects interpretation of the phrase zahra minha, by several of the earliest Islamic scholars and particularly by al qifal uh, quoted by razi um, as that which a human being may openly show in accordance with prevailing custom. Al-Adash Although the traditional exponents of Islamic law have for centuries been inclined to restrict the definition of what may decently be apparent to a woman's face, hands, and feet, and sometimes even less than that, as I said, some of them said half the leg or half the arm, he continues, we may safely assume that the meaning of is much wider and that the deliberate vagueness of this race is meant to allow for all the time-bound changes that are necessary for man's moral and social growth. The pivotal cause in the above injunction is the demand addressed in identical terms to men as well as to women to lower their gaze and be mindful of their chastity. And this determines the extent of what at any given time may legitimately, in consonance with Quranic principles of social morality, be considered decent or indecent in a person's outward outward appearance. Um, I'll, I'll go on, footnote 38 is probably also helpful. The noun khimar, of which khumur is the plural, denotes the head covering customarily used by Arabian women before and after the advent of Islam. According to most of the classical commentators, it was worn in pre-Islamic times more or less as an ornament, and was let down loosely over the wearer's back. And since in accordance with the fashion prevalent at the time, the upper part of a woman's tunic had a wide opening in the front, her breasts were left bare. Hence the injunction to cover the bosom by means of a a term so familiar to the contemporaries of the Prophet. Does not necessarily relate to the use of a khemar as such, but is rather meant to make it clear that a woman's breasts are not included in the concept of what might be decently be apparent of her body and should not therefore be displayed. So what Muhammad Asad is saying and what I tend to agree with is that word zina, what may appear of a woman, is very much like the concept of modesty, and we'll talk about tabarruj in a second, like the concept of modesty is bound by custom, practice, habit. The pivotal point is modesty. Is it mandatory that a woman covers her hair? In my opinion, and God knows best, Note that the, that the mention is bring the khimar to cover your chest. But there is no normative statement that you must indeed wear the khimar. That's, in my opinion, on Allahu A'lam. Does this mean all these women who wear the khimar, wear the hijab, should take it off? Absolutely not. Because if they sincerely believe that this is what Allah wants from them, then that's, that's what it, absolutely they should do. And if they sincerely believe this is necessary for their modesty, this is absolutely what they should do. And, moreover, there are parts of the world where if a woman is not wearing khimar, not covering her hair, it would be immodest. As there are parts of the word, world where if a woman is not covering her hair, it doesn't mean that she's immodest. But let me... Why? It's just to emphasize this point. Is Allah, by saying, bring your khimar upon your bosoms, is Allah saying you must, in fact, wear the khimar? In my opinion, that if Allah wanted to say you must, in fact, wear the khimar, Allah wouldn't have left it vague like this. Because the khimar was indeed worn, like the turban, like the man's turban, as an ornament. Protection from the sun as an, and as an ornament. The khimar, as we know from, would often be hooked either at the front or in the middle of the head or even in the high classes, the khimar would even be very hooked at the very back, like that, clipped here. So it was indeed an ornament. And the Qur'anic prescription is, okay, you see that piece of cloth? Cover your bosoms with it. There is a famous hadith attributed to Aisha that when this ayah was revealed, women would ripped parts of their lower garments and covered their heads until they became like black crows. Uh, that hadith there's, it has a lot of problems as well. Part of, I mean, many problems, but among the problems is that we know that already, it, unless you were a slave girl, unless you were a slave girl or extremely poor, women wore ikhmar and so the tradition that says women ripped their, their their garments to cover their heads would assume that they were going around without a head without a khimar which is historically not plausible. this is other than the isnad issues with that tradition so we get to the you know, the the crux of the matter is the interpretation of the earliest authorities as some, as I said, um, as some like Qutadad ibn Makhrama and so on, and, um, and ibn Abbas, who said that it it doesn't it it's half the leg and half the arm. Most other authorities said it's the, the the zina that must be covered is in the entire body except for the hands and the face but when in my and this is again in my opinion on Allahu alam is that as i researched this i found that it was all made pivotal or the crux of the matter is majaratil ada now this takes us to the issue of zina itself. In my opinion, a woman could cover her hair and entire, cover her entire body except for the hands and the face and still violate the zina rule. The crux of the matter is what was referred to as tabarush. A tabarush um, let's see if I, uh, I, uh wait, I hope I, work. it comes from the, the word Baraja. It comes from a ship showing in the sea. You know how a ship stands out in the sea. Let me see if I, if I write it? Okay, I, I didn't write it, but so I can't quote it, but um. um it's it's not. It's just about the meaning of of tabaruj, where where the word comes from, and so it comes from, from the word baraja. Baraja is where a ship stands out in the sea, for something to clearly appear. So tabaruj is to bring undue attention to the self. Now, a woman could still cover her hair and oh the the um uh, if you're going to can you see if you could where it says um what was the language um um n- none of the languages coming to me subhanallah um So what I'm trying to say is that and and the the reason Tabarroj came up is that if you are bringing or if you are attracting undue attention even to the face, that is Tabarroj. So if you wear the hijab but you otherwise wear provocative clothes, like clothes that is very tight, or clothes that is see-through. Or you wear, you cover everything except the hands and face, but you, it's like the the expression that I I hear, um, uh, I don't know if if it's current anymore, but maybe I'm, I'm dating myself, but dolled up. Is that still in, in, in use? Like when a woman dolls herself up? Yeah. Yeah, th- that is tabarosh. Although you're covering the hair, but you become dolled up, you put a lot of makeup to bring attention to your face. To say, basically, look at my look at how pretty I am. That attention to the to the physicality of a person. I am pretty. Look at me. Which in the days of social media is uh, I mean part of al Basar, by the way, is that you don't look you don't watch stuff like that on social media. A proper Muslim in a Ghad al-Basar would not follow people on social media because they doll themselves up or they put a lot of makeup and put themselves on display. Um, That is not consistent with Ghad al-Basr. And it is not a small matter. It's like exactly as Allah says, you do things that you think are small but in fact they are great and grand with Allah. So is it a very big deal if you are following or looking at in, on social media, at women because they have makeup and they look pretty and all of that. Yeah, it is a big deal. That is inconsistent with Ghadd al Basar. You should not follow and leave alone that even if a woman doesn't dignify herself or compromises in her dignity by objectifying herself. Don't be aun lish shaitan alayha. Don't be an aid to shaitan by, in fact, giving her what shaitan tells her she wants, and that's views and followers. And it is your job as a Muslim, man or woman, to say, may Allah guide you, but I'm not going to support this behavior. Why am I saying all of this? Because the nur that Surah An-Nur is talking about here is true modesty. Substantive modesty. Yes, Allah sets the parameters that it, it will never be the case that showing cleavage is part of being modest. Why? Because Allah specifically said, cover the jaib, don't show cleavage. So no woman can come and say, well, showing cleavage is part of modesty. And as we know, where elsewhere, Allah says, lower your jilbab. So, you know, we can get into Juristic disagreements as to whether the feet an inch above the feet, two inches above the feet, three inches above the feet. These are, but substantively, Allah said the modest thing to do is cover most of the leg. So the chest and the leg. Now, other than that, it is custom, social standards and substantive modesty. So when I see people who consider themselves good Muslims, or people who are happy that a woman is muhajaba, and or a woman that actually wears a hijab, because I've seen that, like a woman that wears a hijab, but then she's on social media, has thousands of followers. Why? Because she dolls herself up and attracts physical attention. What is Islamic in that? Social media is public space. That is the public space. Are you helping shaitan in a public space? Or are you obstructing shaitan? Every time you go, it is exactly like like every time you walk in a street. Allah is observing you. Who you say salam? Whether you say salam, whether you repeat salam, whether you you do al-basar, whether you hurt someone, it, it, to our public space today is the 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 what do you call it? The net, it net. Th- that's public space. So every time you go there and you hurt someone. What did the Prophet say? That you do not commit ada, you don't hurt someone. So every time you go on social media and you curse someone, you you slander someone, you backbite about someone, that is a huge haram. That's fahisha. That is fahisha, people, fahisha. You are committing exactly what Surat An-Nur tells you not to do. Every time you go and you start uh, surfing and watching things you shouldn't watch, and I'm not even talking about something as, as extreme as pornography. I am talking about s- supporting anything that shaitan would be happy about. Don't لا تَكُنْ لِشْحَيْطَانِ Don't be a support to shaitan. And when a young girl finds that she's getting attention because of her makeup, and she's getting attention because of her physical appearance instead of her intelligence and good moral character and the soundness of her opinions, you are being owned to Shaitan. You are helping Shaitan. You are as, assisting Shaitan in corrupting the soul of this person, in objectifying this person, in telling this person, commercialize your dignity and your privacy. Which you although instead of telling her your body is not yours and your looks are not yours and it is not, you are simply entrusted with these things. You are telling her, go ahead, turn yourself into a commodity and we will applaud you by, you know, following you, by giving you thumbs up, by doing whatever people do. In the same way you are, but at the same time, you can't go on the net and curse her or hurt her, or malign her, because that is Ezza Look at how Allah teaches you to flood your space with light. When Allah tells us that this message came to take us out of darkness to light, instead of hopes, instead of hopes, tiba tiba has the beautiful nectar of flowers tiba is has the the beauty of beauty it's it's light it is kindness it is generosity it is hamia it is to care about one another to protect one another that is tiba anytime that you turn a human being into a commodity, that is not tiba. Anytime you turn into a human being into a target practice, let me, you know, slam you as as harsh as all the harsh words I can muster, that is not tiba. Anytime you perpetuate ugliness in public space, that is not tiba, that's chupts. And chups and fahisha are close twins and they originate from one source shaitan so surah an-nur to go back to surah an-nur surah an-nur is underscoring again because i i know that you know in my view in allah alam in my view that allah was not telling you that the crux of modesty is to cover your hair or not cover your hair. That can be decided according to what counts as modest or immodest depending on social circumstance and time and space and all of that. But what Allah was saying is pay attention to substantive modesty. Do not cheapen yourself. Do not commodify yourself. Do not teach yourself To violate your own privacy. If you get to the point where you say the purpose of my body is to put clo to to commodify myself to people, you have violated your own honor. Okay um there is um um shall i share with you um Okay, because I don't want to be accused of... Uh, now I'm obsessed about uh, my going to... Okay, so I'll... I'll okay, take, take a deep breath and just... Because this is going to... It, it requires a little bit of... It requires that you pay attention. You know, you can't be busy doing anything else as you as you listen to, to, to this snippet. Okay. So, notice that the area goes on to say that don't show your zina with exceptions, right? And the zina that you can in fact appear with your zina in other words you don't have to be so worried about uh if if let's say zina is to doll yourself up to to put you know a lot. so that is permissible with buula or aba or the, uh, the your your, um, your husbands or the fathers of your husbands or um, your children or um, the children of your husband um, or your brothers or the children of your brothers or your sisters or the children of your sisters. Um, okay. Until we get to اَوْمَا مَلَكَتْ اَيْمَانُهُنْ or those that your right hands possess. And in traditional jurisprudence, they'll tell you, well, what your right hands possess are slave boys or slave men. That, and in this context, there's a hadith from Ennis. Ennis reports that the Prophet, ﷺ um brought a slave boy he gifted a slave boy to uh Fatima radiallahu anha. um and that when the that slave the slave boy means he was he was uh eighteen and that when he came in that Fatima covered her hair. And then the, the Prophet said to her, Laysa alayki bas," that, uh, that you don't worry about covering your hair because that's your slave boy. Um, I've this is another tradition that I've spent. Because in Sunni sources they tell you it's authentic, and I spent a considerable time uh, investigating this. It, it, it just, it, it's. I I had my reasons to be very suspicious of uh, the the whole narrative um, of a slave boy being given to Fatma and then, um, and because then. We knew, for instance, that Aisha did have a servant that she set free upon her death. And one of the issues in this narrative with Aisha is that this servant is supposed to have, uh, according to some versions of the tradition, is supposed to have kafanah, that he, he actually helped prepare her for burial. Um, this genre of traditions where you have a slave boy serving someone of the position of Fatima, well, if the Prophet, this tradition tells us, gifted Fatima a slave boy, then we should have a track record of what happens to the slave boy afterwards. So there should be reports that say, you know, either she freed him or, you know, what happens to him upon her passing away or something. But to have a narrative that just interjects a slave boy given to Fatima in this type and, you know, thank you, goodbye, it, it, then, you, then you need to do a lot of work to look into the origins of this tradition. And one of the most remarkable things that I found in this tradition is the, again, the pro Umayyad factors in this narrative. In other words, people who supported, were very strong supporters of Mu'aliya, um sided with Muawiyah, So why would they narrate something like this about Fatima? Um, I mean, it, it is rather interesting because it seems to me since this faction tended to always try to report traditions that would... Make Ali al-Bait look, um, take down the 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 or or, or compromise the reverence of Ali al Let's put it that way. Um, so, why would this? So, what is the point behind this tradition? One would, you know, and it's interesting because. This goes back to those people who talk about slavery in Islam and say, oh, you know, slavery was very widely accepted. The purpose of this tradition is to say that the Prophet had a slave that he gifted to Fatima and not attached to any battle, which then begs the question, well, where did he get the slave from? Because... No reports about him being gifted this person. And we know that the practice of the Prophet was to free any time anyone gifted him with a slave, he would free them. But his report is actually he doesn't free the slave. He gives the slave to Fatima. And here, in fact, I suspect, the point was to, as if, picture the Prophet, AS, as someone who, was of the type to own slaves, and that Fatima herself would be a slave owner. To me, this is evidence that slavery was a zamima, was a negative thing. Because if your enemies are inventing a report that attributes ownership and transference of slaves... They wouldn't do that unless it would be considered a naqisa, something negative. If it was neutral, they wouldn't invent it. Um, Again, if if people who wanted to do what I consider real analytical history with our tradition uh, instead of just you know okay anyway um okay so the other th- it's so ma ma malakat aymanukum so clearly m- many muslims slavery was very widespread, and many Muslim women owned slaves or their household had slaves. And the Quran comes and says that there is zina, notice here the phrasing, that the zina can be shown to al-bu'ula, al-bu'ula are the husbands, and then the fathers of husbands, the, the, the sons of husbands, the... Uh, um. Uh, brothers, sisters, sons of brothers and sisters. And also those those either who are servants or slaves. But it cannot be logically you think about it and you can you say the zina that can be shown to a servant cannot or Perhaps even a slave boy cannot be the same as what is shown to a husband. Think about it, right? It it cannot be the same. Because otherwise, and and in fact, Muslim jurists, you know, would say, well, you know, and here is a it's a well with the father of a husband or your nieces or nephews you can. um show uh, there, there's the concept of in other words that he, there's a whole juristic discussion about well okay so what can be shown to a husband as opposed to these categories but what I'm just flagging is that The phrasing of the Quran is that further evidence that the core idea is modesty. So it's saying there are people where you have to pay careful attention that you're not bringing undue attention to yourself because they are considered within your public engagement. So those who are foreign to you. But then there is the family circle of people. And within that circle, you can be far more relaxed about what type of attention. But it doesn't spell out the Quran itself, doesn't spell out what's appropriate appropriately to be shown to a husband as opposed to a brother, for instance. It's not in the text of the Quran. It appeals to our sense of morality and decency. Let me show you one other thing. So notice here, it says, it comes, it comes, right? Awtif al Ladi Lamyazaru alawratunisa. So Atuf al Ladi Lamyazaru are children who wouldn't understand women's nakedness and wouldn't have any desire. So it it, it is uh so very young children. But gayr irba minar rijal. Now, Islamic law translated uli irba minar rijal, Muhammad Asad, let's see if Muhammad Asad translates it as male attendants uh, as are beyond all sexual desire. So who are these male attendants that are beyond sexual desire? Well, in imperial Islamic law, they tell you these are the castrata. But if you look in the very earliest sources of Islamic law, you'll be surprised to find quite a bit of traditions that Omar that ibn al-Khattab, Ali ibn Abi Talib, uh, uh, Abu Bakr, forbade not just the making of castrata, because what castrata is, you you get a slave and you castrate the slave, which is un-Islamic. I mean, that is clearly haram. But that they also forbade the buying of castrated or... So that they considered castration such an offense that they said a Muslim should never... Own a castrated person. We cannot be a part of that practice at all. Imperial Islamic law later on, uh, because it was so widespread, it, it, it has you know starts talking about no, you can't own ca- castrated. It, it never gets to the point where say you can castrate people, but it's, in Islamic law it just said that you can't own them. I mean sorry, the Imperial Islamic law says oh, you can in fact own them, although you can't do it to them. So it is the the, the the mythology is that it was non-Muslim slave merchants that did it, although I'm sure that there were Muslim slave merchants that did it, because once you're a slave merchant, you, you lose a lot of your humanity and you, you deal with human beings as merchandise, so on. But the earliest Islamic legal positions because castrata was not a part of the reality of early Muslims. That was that came in later with the Imperial Islam. Ghayri Unil Irba are was read as the men La hajata lahum Ilan Nisa they don't desire women why don't they desire women in the early position said that because they are either um uh, uh, invalids meaning they are the because of a mental defect um you know you back then you didn't Put the um, I I don't like the word insane, but I, I, you didn't put the insane away in in hospitals. The the insane lived with you. And so the early positions was that well, this was referring to people who don't have don't desire women because of a mental defect, or because of advanced age. And then they get into very interesting discussions about who are the ulil uh, irba of. But among the, the early positions that did not survive in later Islamic legal schools is a uh, sulaha that it would included that it was referring not just to the invalids, but it was referring to the truly pious. So, there is a difference between Islamic law as it develops later and, and the earliest position surrounding the Quranic text in the first century of Islam. So, pause here and think Okay, so you cover your zina except with your husbands, and all the categories: your nieces, your nephews, your brothers, your sisters, your 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 father-in-law, and so on and so forth. Uh, your your stepsons, your slaves, and possibly men who are advanced in age, men who are invalids, and men who are shiuch who are truly pious if you consider all of that in the context of the early in in, in the, the 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 first century of receiving the quran zina it is clear that zina did was as used in this ayah referred to to something that is socially defined because what you what you show a sheikh cannot be the same as what you would show your husband and what you show your brother cannot be the same as what you would show a, a senior citizen. What would define these parameters? It is precisely... That is why they would say that what you would in what by nature and, but remember that the nature of human beings changes and evolves because what would what we human beings would understand as very cruel in one age would or what would or, what we would understand as merciful as one age would appear as cruel in another age. The, our very psychologies as human beings are constructed by what we eat, what we experience in our environment, how we're educated, how we're raised, how societies are structured. Our psychologies are as much as constructed and When the Qur'an speaks in terms of darkness and light, the Qur'an is speaking to us so that we can generate light whatever the circumstances that we are in, whatever the context. It It is speaking to us as intelligent, creative, evolving human beings. So my point is that when we put a straight jacket, a legal straight jacket, upon morality, we can often produce the absurdity that does not reflect light. The absurdity, for instance, of, as, as from where I came from, I've experienced all the time, You know, a woman would be wearing the hijab and walking around in Cairo, very tight jeans, very tight shirt, um, and doing things that are completely inconsistent with modesty. Uh, Or what you see nowadays, women wearing the hijab and yet they, they have makeup, they put makeup on like a model, and their whole life is about their social media. And getting uh, follows, or people who sit there and you know lecture women about hijab, and then, uh, uh, but yet they have no qualms about spending hours on social media, you know, following and looking at things that they shouldn't be looking at. And I'm not I'm not even talking about something like pornography. I'm talking about even you know far le- like helping Shaitan. When dealing with, uh, um, um, there's something I was going to say, and then um, I blanked out. So, anyway, let, let's let's take uh, let's take a three-minute break, uh, and maybe it will come to me. Okay, don't go anywhere. Surat al-Nur is not done yet. It doesn't seem like it's even close to being done. <laughs> oh,
0: Bismillah
1: ar-Rahman rahim So, then, so it is not just. Look at the, the, not just what, you watch what you say, you honor one another, you respect each other's privacy and dignity, you differentiate between public spaces and private spaces. You respect the privacy of private spaces, and when you, there is a difference in the way you conduct yourself in a private space within your circle of um, close relatives or close individuals that are part of your household as opposed to the way you conduct yourself in with the lowering of the gaze which is again as I said an entire philosophy of life not just a a, a, a legalistic prescription then it moves on one إن يكونوا فقراء يغنيهم الله من فضله والله واسع عليم وليستعفف الذين لا يجدون نكاحا حتى يغنيهم الله من فضله والذين يبتغون الكتاب مما ملكت أيمانكم فكاتبهم إن علمتم فيهم خيرا وأتوهم من مال الله الذي آتاكم ولا تكرهوا فتياتكم على البغاء إن أردنا تحصنا لتبتغوا عرض الحياة الدنيا ومن يكرهن فان الله من بعد اكراههن غفور رحيم ولقد انزلنا اليك ايات مبينات من الذين من قبلكم للمتقين so this is now 33 and 34 or so let's see and you ought to marry the single from among you as well as such of your male and female slaves as are fit for marriage if they whom you intend to marry are poor let this not deter you god will grant them sufficiency out of god's bounty for god is infinite in god's mercy and all knowing and as for those who are unable to marry let them live in continence until god grants them sufficiency and out of god's bounty and if any of those whom you rightfully possess desire to obtain a deed of freedom, write it out of them, write it out for them if you are aware of any good in them, and give them their share of the wealth of God which God has given you. And do not, in order to gain some of the fleeting pleasures of the worldly life, coerce your slaves, maidens, into whoredom, if they happen to be desirous of marriage, and if anyone should coerce them, then verily after they have been compelled to submit in in their helplessness, God will be much forgiving and a dispenser of grace. And indeed from on high high have we bestowed upon you messages clearly showing the truth and many a lesson from the stories of those who have passed away before you and many an, an admonition to the God conscious. Okay. So... So several things. Um, (coughs) First, marry, make it a point to marry those who are, to marry slave, Men and slave girls. Now, here is, is an important point because those who said, and, and let's be very, very clear about this. If you are saying, if Allah is saying, either if you have a slave, marry the slave. Or Allah is saying, if you have a slave, allow the slave to get married. For those who said that sexual relations with slaves without marriage is permissible, have a very big problem here. Because if you say, Allah is saying, allow your slave to get married, it is elementary that it cannot be that the slave for let's say a slave girl would be having sex with her owner and sex with her husband this is precisely why as this ayah exactly like the ayah reads is is that those who understood from this ayah that the only proper sexual relations with slaves is through marriage are the ones on the correct path. Is that Allah is saying slaves are like servants. They're not there to serve you sexually. They're, They're like, effectively, like maids in your home. And that's the status. That was effectively the status of slaves. Is that they're, their help. So that's number one is that marry those slaves either yourself or allow them to be married. The fact that they are slaves should not be or prevent these people from being married. And notice that. Many people thought that it is socially undesirable to marry slaves, that it was not considered uh, uh, um, because of their poverty. It was not considered a, a socially prestigious thing. And as we've talked about before, Islam came and explicitly countered that social norm by saying, "If you want to please Allah, indeed marry these people and don't let social status or economic poverty dissuade you from marrying such individuals." The other really important part is in Mukataba. Mukataba is where a slave buys their own freedom from their owner. And there is, in the earliest, there, there is a big debate in Islamic law, whether um, whether the contract of Mukataba, where a slave buys their freedom, through their labor. So you sign a contract and say, you know, uh, my labor would be valued at such, and when I do X amount of labor, then I earn my freedom. Whether it is a mandatory contract or a voluntary contract. In fact, in other words, whether a slave has a legal right to such a contract so that the owner does not have the discretion to say, I don't want to allow my slave to earn their freedom. And Shaf'i, for instance, said that the owner of a slave should not only be forced to enter into contract of mukataba, but should also be forced to allow the slave to marry that if the owner of a slave refuses to allow the slave to marry, the, the slave should go to a judge, sue their owner, and, and obtain the right to marry whoever they, the slave wants. Um, and in fact, it is said, there, there's, there are reports, that this verse was revealed uh, because of a man called Hawaitud, uh, Hawaitub bin Abdul Aziz, Hawaitub was a, a slave and he asked his owner to enter into a contract of mukataba where Huwaitub would purchase his freedom from his owner. And according to these traditions, that the Huwaitub's the, uh, owner ref, refused. And that Huaytub then complained to the Prophet, والسلام, and then that this revelation came. And upon this revelation, the Prophet والسلام, forced Huaytub's owner to enter into a contract of mukataba with him. Um, this, of course, what's what i find really interesting is that i would have expected during the imperial period of the development of islamic law that the idea of a compulsory contract of mukataba or a cause of action so that the slave can force the owner to allow them to marry I would have expected that legal position to entirely disappear. Why? Because it was not, the Id- while contracts of Mukataba, where a slave purchases their own freedom, was known to Near Eastern legal systems, in all Near Eastern legal systems, you could not compel the owner to enter into such a contract. It it was up to the owner. And, in fact, often, in Near Eastern legal systems, these contracts, when entered into, were rather uh, unreasonable. The the owner would be free to, to demand whatever they wanted to demand. But what is surprising is that this position actually does not vanish in imperial Islamic law. So it remains a contested issue. It remains an issue where Islamic legal schools, even in the imperial period, even well into the uh, second century and third century, where Muslim jurists are, are, you know... So what surprises me is the survival, is the fact that you still have 50% of the jurists saying that the owners can be forced to enter into a contract of Mukataba which was not known to Near Eastern legal systems, which probably is due to the strengths of traditions like the Hawaito tradition that and other reports, because there's also reports that Omar ibn Khattab uh, uh, forced owners to enter, uh, enter into contracts of mukataba. Uh, it is also the position of jafar uh, sadiq that uh, that this is a matter of right not a matter of choice uh, and same thing about the cause of action brought by a slave against the owner to allow them to marry um so it's very interesting the other thing and is As you notice, that you cannot coerce slave girls. Al biga, al is uh, it's a word that describes any form of prostitution, whether you know uh, discreet or non-discreet, and. There are many reports that the, the reports the, the um, tell us that there were, um, let's see, did I write how many? Yeah, that there were as many as six girls in Medina uh, Muaza, uh, Musaika, Umayma, Amra, Arwa, Katila that these six girls were owned. Some reports say that they were all owned by Abdullah ibn Ubayy, but that's probably not historically accurate. Some reports say that they were owned by different people. doesn't matter. Anyway, that it was well known in in pre-Islamic practice that it was not unusual for those who owned slaves to use them either uh, to entertain friends and guests to in other words force them to have sex with um, their guests or to force them to have sex for money and in other words to prostitute them but it and this practice was was quite widespread in Mecca but After Islam in Medina, there were reports that the owners of these six girls continued to prostitute them in one form or another. And I'm summarizing a whole bunch of reports, but basically that these six girls at one point get together and they talk about how much they hate the fact that their owners force them to Sleep around. And two of them get the guts to go and complain to the Prophet. Um, Musaika and Umayma are the two. And that they, in fact, go and complain to the Prophet, and the, the Prophet prohibits their basically and that this revelation came as a confirmation to the prophet's prohibition. It was, for Near Eastern legal systems, it was, again, setting boundaries. The idea of slavery was that you owned the body of the person that you purchased that body was yours, you do with it as you please. And that's why in most Near Eastern legal systems, even if you injured your slave, there was no punishment. The first Near Eastern legal system to even allow for that if you injured or you murdered your slave for it it to be an actionable cause of action, uh, uh, an actionable legal offense was the Islamic legal system. It's important to understand in what way Islam presented moral progress. Because in our days, of course, it's not much moral progress if we reproduce the same laws. But understanding what was the Islamic project tells us what our marching orders should be, right? I mean, if basically, in in that time, in that place, you owned the body of your slave, and Islam comes and says, no, that slave has the right to marry. That slave has the right to purchase their own freedom. That slave, in fact, you can't castrate your slave. That slave has... Not only that, but that slave, you don't actually own the body, so you're not free to do with that body as you wish. And if you injure your slave or you murder your slave, we can actually, that's a punishable offense. And if all of that is, was constituted moral progress at the time, then what is the moral trajectory that we are charged with? If we think that our job is to simply repeat the the laws of old and brag about, oh, well, let me tell you about how wonderful Islam is. Look, it did this and did this and did this. Okay, but what is it doing today? Put it simply. How is it bringing light today? That was bringing light back then. Back then, it's like it was news. Oh, I have to allow my slaves to purchase their freedom. I, oh, I don't have free access to my slave's body. I can't prostitute my slave. I have to let my slave marry. Th- there was a buzz. That was the light being brought forth. What is the light being brought forth today? See, this is my problem with the Muslim legal experts of today. The only light they can think of is what has been defined by the West as human rights. And even when they think, largely what they do is imitation. Either that or to resist the amount of human rights that the West has brought forth to say well not that far okay but substantively ask yourself what is the light that islam brings to humanity today because that is the charge of the quran as i that is the concept of law as an anecdote it's a illustration. Allah is illustrating. Here is a historical challenge. Here is how Allah brought light to that historical challenge. What are you going to learn from it? So notice that after Allah tells us this, that then Allah reminds us things that we pass through by very quickly and not pause it but Allah remind us وَلَقَدْ Ayatin إِلَيْكُمْ آيَاتٍ مُبَيِّنَاتٍ وَمَثَلًا مِنَ الَّذِينَ خَلَوْا مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ What is all of this? What is everything that we've talked about so far? What is the, the fact that in principle there is a criminal punishment for zina? That there is a criminal punishment for slander? the whole discourse on the right of privacy, the whole discourse on the right of public space, the whole discourse on modesty, the whole discourse on lowering the gaze, all of that. Allah comes and reminds us, this is verse 34, that, listen, these ayat are mubayyinat, these ayat are, mubayyinat is ayat that, that explain to you what you need to know for enlightenment. And we do so by having you reflect upon those those who came in the past. We let you reflect upon history, upon precedent, so that you understand al-bayyan, so that you understand how to be enlightened. And this is a lesson on how to be God-conscious. Now, critically, this ayah comes right before we jump into Allah reaches the pinnacle of that pyramid and say, I will tell you what this is exactly like. And of course, I've given at least two khutbas about Ayatul Nur. But you can never—I mean, you want to understand Ayatul Nur? Shirazi wrote a whole philosophical treatise on just Ayatul Nur. If you look at Tafsir al-Shirazi, Mullah Sadra, it is one of the most... I mean, you need an entire year to sit and just teach. You can offer an entire course, literally a seminar, on Shirazi's treaties on Ayatul Nur, an entire philosophical treatise. But let me start it today, and inshallah... We finish it. At least this area, uh, next halakha, because it's, it's it. Now look. The concept is deceptively simple, right? You have a niche in the wall. The niche itself is not illuminated. All it is, it is engineered to accommodate light. Now, of course, modern homes, we don't build niches for light, but the engineering of a niche in a home was very critical. You can, you can create a vulgar niche in cheap homes, You could create a vulgar niche, but if meaning just a niche, just a little thing where you put the the, the, the lamp. But in the same way that the whole skill and art in pre modern homes was how you create a home that can circulate air and preserve coolness in other words that the home without air conditioning unlike european homes subhanallah traditional homes you you would always find them cooler than the than the outside that was the the art of engineering the niche had to be built in a, in a such a way to maximize the amount of light while burning the least amount of oil. So the whole architectural skill was that the niche would be positioned in a way that you would get the flooding effect. Because the lesser lamps you need to light up a room, the more efficient and the more effective. So, you had to have a niche. Okay, but what is in this niche? Well, this of course, we're talking about uh, 35, the the famous ayam. So, first, Allah... Tells us, understand, Allah is the light of the heavens and earth. And subhanAllah, I was just reading an article someone sent me um, about dark energy and dark, uh, dark matter. And that you know only 5% of, of what exists is material. And the rest is just this dark energy and dark matter. So what, whatever light there is, that is Allah. To find Allah, Allah can only manifest in light. So that is why people like Shirazi say, if it is darkness, it is not Allah. It is like saying, only al-tayyibat can come from Allah. Can al khabais come from Allah? Can what is khabith, what is foul, what is ugly come from Allah? I would, my view, my position is absolutely not only what is tayyib can come from Allah. The presence of Allah is like a perfume, like like beauty. It is what comes from divinity is only good. Absence of divinity is what, is what darkness is. It's like saying, what is, what is darkness? What is the absence of light? It is simply the absence of a thing. It's like saying, well, what is chaos? Well, chaos is the absence of order. Chaos itself is not a thing. Order is the thing. It's like the light is the thing. So Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. Understand if you if you to comprehend or to even engage or to 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 be with Allah. You must understand that everything we've talked about all these examples that Allah gave us if you are reading the surah as a coherent whole, these are examples of light. So all of these things, honoring each other's dignity, respecting each other, the right to privacy, the rights of public space, everything we've talked about, this is examples of how Allah manifests light. And as we, as when, as when we start descending from the the pyramid, because remember now it's a pyramid at the pinnacle the pyramid is the, uh, the but right after the uh, ayat, yeah, so Allah will talk uh, t- tell us for instance that when you see these these birds fluttering their wings, that that is part of the manifestation of Allah's light. It is it, it, all these these manifestations of beauty that surround you are manifestations of. Not the not the essence of divinities, but the effect of divinity, what comes from divinity, what divinity produces okay so now this in this niche is a lamp where the flame is supposed to be. The lamp is enclosed in a glass. Now, so, that is a light. That glass is in turn like a radiant star. It is luminous. It is fed by a blessed tree. The tree is of such pure and unadulterated oil that the oil itself is luminous as if it luminates without fire. Now you pause, I mean, and as i said you can you can construct this in, in the amount of of what the the what the niche the glass the the lamp the, the glass there are many possible constructions and i'm not saying any of them are wrong but in the context of this area you cannot ignore the fact that it is Allah saying what is the niche that is prepared? Well, the niche is that the existence of a space that can accommodate purity. I mean, if we if we say we are not interested in light at all, that's like denying the niche. But Allah's light upon light, that luminosity, in my view, one of the understandings of that glass, and this is what I just want to emphasize for tonight, is what? How does the light of God, there's a light that is mystical and intangible and Deeply transcendental, and that is the tree and the oil. And then there is that flame, the actual light as it manifests in our lived world. (coughs) But that light cannot shine and flood the space as it should without the proper glass. What is that glass? In my view, in Surah to Nur, clearly it is a, a metaphor for the laws that translate that light. If the laws that translate the light are tainted, smudged, dull, ineffective, dark, it will limit God's light and maybe even bury God's light. See, the responsibility of laws is extremely serious because human beings, you can tell them, go experience God's light. Okay, yeah, in theory, I will seek God's oil. I will seek God's mystical tree. Fine, great. I will even experience God's lit lamp. But if the way that people interact with that light, most people are not, you know, mystical travelers, most people are not great sages. Most people will will interact with that light through the filtered prism of the glass and if the laws that translate divinity to human beings are, don't understand the difference between don't understand the difference between what is ugly and what is beautiful if the laws don't honor people's privacy if the laws don't honor people's dignity then we end up with something truly horrid and that is a laws light is a theoretical construct the, the 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 olive tree the holy oil the but people don't experience this light without the corruptions of the corrupted glass. And what happens with most people is they then they start doubting the existence of the olive tree, the holy oil, and even the lamp. Because they, most people, they experience it in terms of hardship and misery. And then they start saying, well, all we know is the darkness. That's what we experience. This this ugly light or this insufficient light. How do we know that the lamp exists? How do we know that the oil exists? See, that is why it is so dangerous. What, put differently people, Allah is telling these Medinians after... The battle of Badr al Mustaliq, and after the incident with Aisha, you want to understand what will, uh, what allowed you to win Badr? You want to understand what allows you to win? You want to understand what will allow you to inherit an istikhraf as we will see in a second, in what Allah will talk about? What will allow you to become Allah's vicegerents? it is that you reflect Allah's light in the way that you treat each other. It is not enough that you have great individuals, Abu Bakr, Ali, Omar, you know, Ali al-Bayn. is not enough that as individuals, but that you interact, that light must be reinforced, perpetuated, and spread, and furthered. And that's why it becomes light upon light. And that is precisely why when you find societies that are drowning in injustice and corruption, and they come and talk about Islam, it's like Sheikh Muhammad Ghazali would say, you know, it is a, a, an incoherent, You'd say it's just an incoherent discourse that you talk about Islam and injustice as coexisting with each other and that's exactly where he came from. what he was talking about is that it, it, it just doesn't work it doesn't jive in the same way that you, you'd say, well Islam and my concept of light is to you know commercialize modern big you know, the, the, the way, like, Las Vegas is. Well, that concept of the light, it doesn't jive. It, it just doesn't work. The, and when you lose touch with the Quran, that Allah is saying that Allah's light manifests through the way that you treat each other, the way that you dignify each other, the way that you respect each other, The way that you honor each other, and you 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 lose sight of that. That's precisely how you end up with the messed up societies that we've ended up with. What time is it now? Okay, actually, let's. This is a good point to stop because we. It will take us. You know, this is just a convenient stopping point um which is a good point a, a good place for a tuesday halakha. uh it's, i think it's 9:20 our time now okay so alhamdulillah rabbil alamin and inshallah we we'll continue uh next halaqah surah alhamdulillah alhamdulillah
0: wow i um i don't know if everyone feels as blown away as i do <laughs> it's kind of like we aren't even we, we've just reached, like, the top of that pyramid, and it, but it's like everything that you've covered is everything that is what we need and what's wrong. So even when you say when people have lost touch with the Quran, it's almost like our generation never had touch with the Quran because I don't think people have ever understood this, and it makes me reflect on everything we've learned in the surahs along the way, you know, like how we began with all of the Meccan surahs and how they started so foundationally and kind of taught us like baby steps and sort of the the building blocks. And then, you know, then we do our hijra, we come to, you know, Medina, and then we start building upon the society and all of that, but it just feels like, oh my gosh, now we've just arrived this whole idea of light upon light. Like I've never understood light upon light beyond sort of this just general notion that people talk about, well, it's a lamp within a light and with a, you know, it just kind of like almost this... um, lantern that you can't quite describe and it's just so beautiful and that's sort of it but what you presented to us is like when you look at all of the building blocks that we've been taught how to be you know how to be good individuals good Muslims how do we determine how you know what is actually divine not divine and then you come to sort of like this crescendo of it's not just your individual light and it's not good enough just to have be good and then the beautifully good okay so you not you have to be just continue to push to elevate your light but then it's also all of the just how you interact with one another and how you just create light, and the idea of then you layer on top of that. Allah is light, and then light upon light is like us taking everything Allah gave us and building upon. I mean, it just like I've ne- you know I've never heard this anywhere, and I like, but it means so much, especially now that we've taken all of these steps before, and it's um, you know it's it's honestly it's so.
1: Is, is Surah al-Nur adopted?
0: No, it's not adopted yet. Er, so. er,
1: pres- guarantee the light in your life and hereafter and adopt surah an-nur if, if 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 i had the means i would adopt surah an-nur immediately <laughs> you
0: don't have to <laughs> you're giving us the surah you don't have to adopt <laughs> it <laughs> i don't think you can yeah increase yeah, your own I'll light or yeah. blessings <laughs> anymore <laughs> by adopting the surah but alhamdulillah um no, I just like, honestly, just this just all takes us to a, a completely different place, different understanding, different depth. Um, it's so humbling, it's, it just blows everything apart. And I think that for us, it just, again, hammers home the relevance for our day and our, our age. And with everything that we're confronting you know, like, we we see all around us, people are searching, like Muslims, like, I mean, even on social media, you talked a lot about social media today, but I keep coming across, you know, people are just trying to piece things together, and it's like they don't even consider that the Quran is a place to look for the answers and for the light, and that's what's the most shocking, and yet, everything we cover, in <coughs> every halakha, all you need is right here. So, <coughs> thank you so much, I honestly cannot wait for the remainder but just what we've learned inshallah so far is is priceless and um i think i mean i'm i'm sure that so grateful just no words to express how grateful and how blessed we are to receive this now in, in our time so thank you so much and uh thank you everybody for being with us um we're looking forward to seeing you guys hopefully Friday for the khutbah, Saturday for the continuation, um, and hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. And uh, Alhamdulillah, Assalamualaikum, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> take care.